All right, look, here's the economic equation right now. Really strong labor market, high inflation, and a war. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Friday today, the fourth day of March. Good as always to have you along, everybody. It is possible, I suppose, that there have been weeks with more high-stakes global economic news. Maybe the depths of Lehman Brothers and the financial crisis. Yes, probably that. But things just feel kind of fraught right now, although with a distinct undertone of, you know what? The U.S. economy is actually doing pretty well. I speak here, of course, of the February jobs report that came out this morning. 678,000 new jobs in this economy last month. The unemployment rate is down to 3.8%. So much to talk about, so little time. Gina Smilex at the New York Times. Sadiq Reddy is at Politico. Hey, you two. Hey, Kai. Hey, Kai. So, Gina, let me start with you. Um, The jobs report, 678,000, as I said, 3.8%. I will posit that this is unabashedly good news. You? Absolutely. I think this was a super good jobs report, almost no matter who you are. Um, Like you said, strong jobs growth. We actually saw people coming back into the labor market, which we've been waiting for. And uh, average hourly earnings are growing strongly Mm -hmm. on a yearly basis, but they didn't go gangbusters over the month, which is good news if you are sitting at the Federal Reserve because they were worried (laughs) that those numbers were getting a little crazy and might not be sustainable. And so I think this was an all around good news jobs report. All right. The Fed, of course, coming up in a minute, Gina. So hang on one sec. But Sudeep, can we now say uh, within some margin of error that's like low single digits that the labor market is basically back, right? Oh, yeah. Within within low single digits, yeah. we're, we're there. We're back, baby. This is it. This is a <laughs> remarkably tight labor market. So, and, and in those low single digits of, of where we've, we've recovered 90 percent of the jobs uh, that we had pre-pandemic, but now we're in this this period where some people obviously retired. Uh, some are dealing with the, the continuing challenges. Uh, and this is just going to be a, a churn labor market right now. Uh, obviously, last year, 47 million people changed their jobs, record number. This turnover rate is going to be remarkable um, this year as well, as long as as long as we stay at this level and uh, don't have a shock to the economy, which I know we'll talk about in a moment. But um, uh, it's a sign of a, of a, of a labor shortage, and uh, it is going to, to, to feel like a tight labor market until something fundamentally changes. Uh, changes in in the economy. All right, Gina, take us inside the thinking in the big conference room at the Federal Reserve, and I want you to do it specifically with wages and inflation. Right. So I think they are very nervously watching various measures of wage growth and thinking about whether those are going to start feeding into what has already been very high inflation. And I think they've increasingly signaled that they are pretty worried that that might be starting to happen, which is why I think today's jobs report probably gives them like a little bit more room for comfort. It was Hmm. one number, so it's not going to be conclusive. Um, But I feel like the fact that things didn't go absolutely nuts in this report, probably good news for them. But you know, they're worried. Clearly, yeah. they're very worried. Yeah. So this is it, though, Gina, right? This is it in terms of substantial data before they meet on the 15th, 16th, right? We will get one more inflation reading, right. which okay. they are all very attuned to. So yeah. March 10th, keep an eye out. Okay. Uh, Sudeep, a little bit more on the Fed here. Chair Powell was uh, on Capitol Hill. He was, I mean, he basically said flat out, yeah, it's going to be a, a 25 basis point, a quarter percentage point. Uh, I thought that was kind of remarkable that he just kind of said that. 
Yeah, he said that with without uh, saying directly. Yeah, we may be in World War Three as well. So well, yeah. um, the fact that he's 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 actually able to raise rates in a moment when you have this much uncertainty uh, about the state of the global economy and, and the future of our own economy is is remarkable. It's remarkable resilience uh, for where we are right now, but it's also uh, a sign of how remarkably late the Fed is in doing something about. Uh, interest rates they're at such a low level he's got to deal with it inflation is still the thing that's that's driving people nuts and keeping sentiment down before you add in this latest twenty dollar twenty five dollar thirty dollar increase in oil prices over the last few months yeah well we're getting we're getting to the war premium here in a second but explain Sudeep what what you mean when you say late right because that I think is the is the crux of this argument yeah this is the the sign of, of how tight the labor market needs to be how long the fed should be should have should have waited to end uh, it's QE policies. There are, there are a lot of people at the Fed who are obviously nervous, wondering whether they, they let the, the party uh, go on too long mm-hmm. before they remove the punch ball, the old, uh, the old principle that, that had been beaten into, into them uh, from the very earliest uh, classes on central banking. And so <laughs> they have to wonder, have they, have they somehow screwed it up and made the great mistake? And, and Jay Powell was out there saying, well, I, I hope I will be remembered well uh, to do what what Paul Volcker did, but not mm-hmm. hopefully not to have to do it in such a, a severe and devastating way that Paul Volcker had to do four decades ago. Yeah, let's remember, he, he really cranked rates. All right, so Gina, look, how um, complicating is, uh, in Fed speaker, the geopolitical situation? <laughs> I feel like you almost couldn't get more complicating yeah. than this geopolitical situation, um, because as as listeners probably are aware by now, because gas prices have gone up, the big thing that Russia and Ukraine export that will affect American economics is oil. And so, you know, we've already seen oil prices on in commodities markets go up quite a bit. They're headed up at the pump. They're likely to head up further as this escalates and continues on. And so, you know, very bad news if you're worried about inflation, because this is, you know, while the Fed tends to like sort of look through inflation shocks, this is the kind of inflation that could get into consumer expectations and mm-hmm. make consumers change their behavior. On the other hand, consumers who are spending more at the pump are going to spend less on other things. And so this could be really bad for growth and the sort of just general uncertainty and unhappiness that comes with being on the precipice of a major mm-hmm. war. And, you know, all of all of the worry that comes with that could also spook consumers, freak them out, make them stop spending money. And so, you know, very much this cuts both ways. Sudeep, we've got Amy Scott coming up on energy here in a minute. But look, I, I, I want your take as a person who covers the, the, the politics of the American economy. The Biden administration still is, is formally saying we see no reason to reduce global energy supplies by cutting off uh, Russian oil and gas sales. Do you believe that is politically sustainable? Uh, there, there is a difference, uh, and they know this in the Biden administration, cutting off oil imports from Russia is the easy thing to do because it's fairly small. Sanctioning Russia's oil industry, which would be the thing that actually devastates Vladimir Putin, is the hard thing to do because it will also devastate the global economy. But the people in the White House are very, very aware that 10 out of the last 12 U.S. recessions were, were preceded by a sharp increase in oil prices and oil shock. And so they know exactly what will create the oil shock in America that leads to a recession, and they need to avoid that. Because it's just it's not tenable to have the entire global economy in a meltdown at the same time. Sudeep Reddy at Politico with kind of a downer of an ender there, actually. Gina Smilek, The New York Times. Thanks, you too. 
Thanks, Guy. Thanks, Guy. Have a nice weekend. On Wall Street today, equities kind of bounce around a little bit. All right. Okay. A lot before they settle lower. I didn't want to point out bonds, though, as I not infrequently do. We talked yesterday about that flight to safety, people buying U.S. Treasuries as things get dicey. Yeah, that today. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. All right, let's pick up on that bit Sudeep was talking about, the political dilemma that President Biden finds himself in with Russian energy. Cut it off. Stop importing the tens of millions of dollars in Russian oil the United States buys every day as a matter of principle. But then if you do that, get ready to pay the price literally at the pump and then probably at the polls in November. Bloomberg reports today that there are conversations happening in the White House about a ban, even though the administration's public position, as I said, is that it has no strategic interest in reducing global energy supplies. Fundamentally, for the United States and most particularly Europe, it is about domestic economies, as Marketplace's Amy Scott reports. The European Union imports about 40 percent of its natural gas from Russia and 25 percent of its oil. Economist Mamdou Salama at the ESCP Business School in London says an all-out ban on those imports is unlikely. They will be hurting themselves more than hurting Russia. The level of dependence on Russia varies widely by country, though. I've got a chart in front of me. That's Andrew Kenningham, chief Europe economist for Capital Economics in London. He says Russia supplies about 100 percent of the gas in the Czech Republic, Latvia and Hungary, but less than 10 percent in France, Spain and Belgium. So the appetite for sanctions varies, too. The big question is about Germany, because, you know, Germany is the, the leading power in Europe anyway. It's nearer to the problems and it is pretty heavily dependent on Russian energy. Germany gets around a third of its oil and natural gas from Russia. This week, officials said they oppose an import ban. A survey from public broadcaster ARD found that a majority of the German people support energy sanctions, even if they have to pay more. Aaron Praktiknyo is president of the German Association for Energy Economics. He says not everyone has the luxury of paying more. We see with soaring energy prices that actually the lower income households have more and more difficulties uh, covering their energy bills. Those have doubled in, in the last month. In contrast, the United States is far less reliant on Russia, importing less than 4% of its oil from the country and no natural gas. Halima Croft is global head of commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. She says continuing those imports is getting harder to justify as the conflict escalates and the humanitarian crisis grows more dire. I think the question is going to be, is there some price that we need to pay in the United States in defense of the principle that you cannot invade a sovereign nation and totally rip up the security architecture in Europe that has prevailed since the Cold War. Something to ask ourselves next time we fill up at the gas station. I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace.
sanctions regime against Russia has come together fast, right? Really fast. And it's been pretty comprehensive, minus the loopholes we've talked about, energy foremost among them. And the Brits have been full partners in the economic war against the Kremlin, mostly. They're on board with financial sanctions and shutting out the Russian central bank. But sanctions on individuals, the 50 or more Russian oligarchs with substantial assets over in the UK, yeah, them not so much. From London, Marketplace's Stephen Beard has that one. At a news conference on Tuesday in London, where he lives in a $100 million mansion, Russian billionaire Mikhail Friedman complained that oligarchs have been unfairly treated. Imposing sanctions against us here just creates enormous pressure for us personally. But we do not have any impact for political decision. He's been sanctioned by the EU and was subsequently locked out of the investment firm he co-founded. But he hasn't yet been sanctioned by the UK, and neither has Britain's most famous Russian oligarch. The man fated by some London soccer fans for buying and then restoring the fortunes of one of Britain's best-known clubs, Chelsea. But Roman Abramovich has not been fated this week in Parliament, and certainly not by opposition leader Sir Keir Starmer, who demanded the billionaire be sanctioned now. Because of his links to the Russian state and his public association with corrupt activity and practices. Abramovich, who says he's done nothing wrong, is now scrambling to sell the club for a reported $4 billion, and he's said to be trying to offload his two London homes valued at $230 million. Roman Borisovich, a Russian-born anti-corruption campaigner now based in Europe, believes Abramovich is being let off the hook. He wants to sell his properties in London, and if he's not sanctioned soon enough, he will sell it and run away with the proceeds. Abramovich says he'll donate the net proceeds to the victims of the war in Ukraine. Borisovich is sceptical about that and deplores what he calls the tardiness of the British authorities in the Western crackdown on Russian kleptocrats. The UK is the weakest link. Despite the outrageous concentration of uh, Russian money in London, nothing has been done. Not so, insisted Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking in Parliament this week. Uh, be in no doubt that the actions that we've already taken, that this House has already taken, are having an effect in, uh, in Moscow. And by True of the systemic the measures, like sanctioning the Russian Central Bank, but just 15 Russian oligarchs here have so far been formally sanctioned, far fewer than in the EU. And unlike France and Germany that have both seized oligarch super yachts, the Brits haven't apparently seized anything yet. For James Bolton-Jones of Spotlight on Corruption, it's the old story. Britain's chronic reluctance to crack down on the estimated $130 billion of dodgy foreign cash laundered in the UK every year. There are certain vested interests which have not been very you know, keen on having this tap of dirty money turned off because they benefit from it. That's bankers, lawyers, accountants, realtors and PR companies. And, says Tom Keating of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies, let's not forget the ruling Conservative Party has received big donations from people close to Putin. That definitely gives those that think that the Johnson government is in hock to Russian money plenty of ammunition. The government insists it's totally committed to waging economic war on Russia and to dismantling the London laundromat. A pity, say campaigners, if it takes so many Ukrainian deaths to make the UK clean up its act. In London, I'm Stephen Beard for Marketplace. Marketplace.
coming up. Don't look at where it is today, but look at the trend. All right, if you say so. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials down 179 today, about a half percent, 36,614. The Nasdaq down 224 points. That is one and seven tenths percent on that index, 13,313. Not quite a palindrome, I guess. The S&P 500 down 34 points, eight tenths percent, 43 and 28 for the week. And holy shnikes has it been a week. The Dow off one and three tenths percent. The Nasdaq down two and eight tenths percent. S&P 500 down 1.3 percent. Heard from Amy about pressure rising to extend sanctions on Russian energy following, of course, the attack last night on that nuclear power plant in Ukraine. So nuclear energy stocks... Chemico sank 4%. Uranium Energy Corporation tumbled 8.3%. Energy Fuels Incorporated powered down 7 and a tenth percent. Among the shortages in Ukraine right now is medication, including insulin. The Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation estimates about 120,000 Ukrainians have type 1 or type 2 diabetes and need the insulin. Insulin maker Eli Lilly up 1.6% today. Did want to talk about bonds super quick. Yield on the 10-year yesterday about 1.88. Today about 1.74%. You're listening to Marketplace. Funding the Ukrainian fight against Russia using cryptocurrency. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Kimberly Adams. War is not only costly in terms of lives lost and families uprooted, but it also just costs feeding soldiers, military equipment and ammunition, supporting displaced people. That's one of the reasons the U.S. and Ukraine's allies are imposing economic sanctions on Russia to cut off funds for war. But it's costing Ukraine as well. Last Saturday, Ukrainian leaders tweeted that the country was accepting donations in the form of cryptocurrency to support its military defense against Russia. As of today, the country has amassed at least $42 million in cryptocurrency, according to the research firm Elliptic. Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports. The Ukrainian government's appeal for direct donations is unusual, says economist Ishwar Prasad with the Brookings Institution. It's certainly not common for a government to crowdfund. What isn't surprising, Prasad says, is that Kiev is turning to cryptocurrencies. Ukraine has been at the forefront of the development of uh, many aspects of cryptocurrencies. He says Ukraine conducts a lot of trade using crypto and recently passed a law legalizing and regulating its use within the country. So I suppose it's a natural extension that at a time like this, they would use any possible means to raise financing, including through cryptocurrencies. Prasad says there are advantages to raising money this way. Unlike traditional aid from other nations or NGOs, deposits into the country's crypto wallets can be spent quickly and without restrictions. That can be appealing to donors, too, says Marav Zair, a blockchain expert at Rutgers Business School. I think from a donor perspective, it's instant. You know, if you really want to help people right away, then you can do it. And there's another advantage for those who might fear retaliation from, say, the Russian government. If the donor wants to stay anonymous, then that is a perfect way to do that. 
Zare says crypto crowdfunding could play a major role in the future of foreign aid, something William Luther at Florida Atlantic University says we should keep an eye on, because the same lack of restrictions that allows donations to be spent quickly can also lead to ethical concerns. You're relinquishing ownership to those funds, and the recipient can use them however they please. That means that the recipient might use those funds in ways that you don't actually approve of. He says if Ukraine can solicit anonymous donations to fund its military operations with no strings attached, then so too can Russia. Or any other government. That's Marketplace's Savannah Marr. For the latest tally on how much the Ukrainian government has raised from its crypto callout, Elliptic is tracking that and some of the sources of the largest donations. We'll have a link on our website, marketplacetech.org. And the Ukrainian government expanded the list of the types of crypto it will take. CNBC reports the Ukrainians are now accepting Dogecoin as well, and we'll link to that story. Like Savannah said, Russia could also raise funds via crypto. And as Vice reports, that has some U.S. senators worried Russia will use cryptocurrencies in its attempts to evade sanctions. Senators including Elizabeth Warren, Mark Warner, Sherrod Brown and Jack Reed sent a letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Wednesday asking if Treasury has the tools it needs to catch such behavior. Now, before we go, we'd like your help with some stories that we're working on related to credit scores. You know, the numbers calculated by an algorithm that can affect major aspects of your financial life. We want to hear your stories about your numbers, how you got them, how you feel about them, and what you want to know about what goes into them. You can email us at mptech at marketplace.org or go to marketplace.org slash the score. I'm Kimberly Adams, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. This episode of APM Marketplace is brought to you by Super Pumped, the battle for Uber, the new Showtime series from the creators of Billions. Based on a true story, strap in for Travis Kalanick's wild ride through Silicon Valley with VC Bill Gurley and board member Ariana Huffington riding shotgun. Driven by disruption, Travis takes a win-at-all-costs approach to transform Uber into a multi-billion dollar tech titan that changes the world. But every surge comes at a price. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Kyle Chandler, and Uma Thurman-Starr in Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, now streaming only on Showtime. Each week, the New Yorker Radio Hour unpacks what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers on topics including race and justice, American history, challenges to democracy, climate change, and more. To get context behind events on the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. We did a story a couple of days ago, I guess, about crypto and the war and how it was real handy to be able to use crypto to make seamless donations to NGOs and charities over in Ukraine, but also how it was real handy for Russia and Russians to be able to use crypto to get around sanctions, a double-sided Bitcoin, if you will. But look, we are still relatively early in the development of crypto economies. The idea, though, is here to stay. So today we're starting a month-long series to explain the nuts and bolts of it, literally how crypto works. And we start with Marketplace's Matt Levin 
on crypto mining, the upsides and the down. There are no hard hats or soot or canaries involved in Bitcoin mining, at least non-metaphorical ones. But it does kind of sound like you're boring through the center of the earth. That's almost 100 rigs, basically hot-rotted computers mining Bitcoin in a retrofitted shipping container in Omaha, Nebraska. The sound you hear actually isn't coming from the rigs themselves. It's what's keeping them from melting. Just a bunch of industrial fans that kick on and kick off. Edward Weniger rents out this facility to miners and does some of his own mining. It runs up a hefty utility bill. We pay in the neighborhood of about $8,000 a month. So what exactly are those things doing? Well, to answer that, you kind of have to know how a Bitcoin transaction works. You want to pay me a Bitcoin for tutoring services rendered. Robert Faroknia is a professor at Columbia's business and engineering schools. He's agreed to a tutoring session for the price of one hypothetical Bitcoin, worth about $40,000 right now. If I Venmoed or Zelled him the money, some financial institution somewhere would check to make sure I actually had forty grand in my account. But Bitcoin doesn't do banks. The whole point is to avoid a centralized financial authority. So how does Professor Faroknia know I'm not writing a bad check? Enter the miners who have a job to do. Look at all your prior transactions since the first day you became a member of Bitcoin Network to ensure that you indeed have at least one Bitcoin you could use to pay for my services. The Bitcoin ledger, which can exist on your computer or mine or anyone's, is the blockchain. Picture about 700,000 stone tablets, the blocks, all lined up together with every transaction in the history of Bitcoin chiseled into them. Unalterable, irreversible. Miners leaf through the blockchain ledger, and if they say, yeah, Matt can cover this. This transaction goes into a holding area called a meme pool. That's basically the Bitcoin DMV. Thousands of pending transactions, about three per second from all over the world, sit and wait for their number to be called. Now serving G076 at window number 17. We're waiting on someone like Edward Weniger in Nebraska to call our number, along with about 2,000 other transactions, sitting patiently with it. He starts chiseling our transaction on his own block, but... It's very much possible that multiple miners are going to select your transaction amongst others and put it in a block. Miners all over the world, from Kazakhstan to Georgia, want to add their block to the blockchain. And there can only be one. So which miner wins? In Bitcoin protocol, uh, the miners are required to solve a mathematical puzzle that in essence is a search for a number This puzzle is generated by the crypto software, and it's really more like a lottery. Maybe the easiest way to understand it. Imagine a slot machine, but as opposed to having three bars, it actually has 64 bars. So you can already imagine how low the probability of success is. For any one pull of that slot machine arm, miners have about a 1 in 27 trillion chance of hitting the jackpot. Odds are literally better you'll be struck by lightning. And what is the jackpot exactly? The incentive for doing all of this in the first place? Currently, it's six and a quarter bitcoins, which is right now worth about a quarter million dollars. 
this is mostly how Bitcoin miners make their money. The winning miners tablet gets added to the blockchain and Professor Faroknia can spend his hypothetical Bitcoin. This happens once every 10 minutes or so. I know it sounds elaborate, but there's a reason it's done this way. Proof of work. I need to ensure that you have done the work verification correctly by imposing on you a task difficult enough to require uh, electricity and resources and time and so on. Proof of work is basically the theory that Edward Winnegar in Nebraska wouldn't go through all this hassle if he was a big fraud. The original idea was miners would really just be nerds on a laptop with some spare time, one slot machine per miner. But it turned out that all people realized, hey, Matt, you have two. I have another five at home. If you combine resources, you have seven, and then you have a higher chance of winning. And as the Bitcoin jackpot soared, multinational mining companies started developing more powerful rigs and pooling thousands of them together. This is what concerns Eric Franklin, a professor who researches climate change at the University of Hawaii. If you've got a a high-end rig, you can basically have the same level of energy demand in a single day that I would have to run my three-bedroom house in Hawaii. Bitcoin evangelists argue that you can easily run the rigs off renewable energy sources. Plus, they say it's not like mainstream banking is carbon neutral. Ethereum and other crypto platforms are experimenting with mining methods that are less energy intensive. But so far, the Bitcoin model is the dominant one. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, laughing so I don't cry, I guess, is the way I would put this one. There's an analyst's note out from BCA Research trying to help clients pick their investing way through the war in Ukraine and possibly worse, it seems. Despite the risk of nuclear war, the note says, and that's a quote, it makes sense to stay constructive on stocks over the next 12 months. It's not funny. I know. Does not make it any less real. All right, we got to go. Here, though, is your moment of economic context, just so you have the number in case the White House decides, so, I don't know, over the weekend or something to stop buying Russian oil. According to AAA, a gallon of gas, national average today, $3.84 a gallon. Technically, it's $3.83.7 a gallon, if that makes you feel better. Historical high, $4.11. Our theme music was composed by B.J. Lederman, Marketplace's executive producer is Nancy Fargali. Nancy Cassett is the managing director of News. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you Monday, everybody. Have yourselves a great weekend, all right? This is APM.